The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. I don't think Boris Johnson will ever actually fully recover from this righteous sense of public anger. Will she buy that it was a work event or will she see it as illegal? Stop doing Covid, theatre, vaccine passports, masks, stuff that doesn't work and focus on what does work. The true tragedy at the heart of this, which is how is Carrie going to peel off £112,000 worth of golden wallpaper from number 10? Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Keen to divert us all from questions about Downing Street parties and birthday cakes, the government's decided this is levelling up week. On cue, this co-pilot's decamped to the north. I'm blasting off for today's trip to Planet Normal from the proud Lancashire town of Burnley, before going on to Blackpool as soon as we touch down back on planet Earth. Amidst a slew of policy announcements, Michael Gove, Secretary of State for Leveling Up No Less, says the Tories really do want to tackle the UK's vast regional wealth imbalances. Britain's certainly the most regionally unequal developed economy on Earth. And countless studies show lockdowns made these regional imbalances even worse in terms of both wealth and health. Unless this Johnson government can appeal to voters across Labour's former Red Wall, In the Northern Midlands, those who switched to the Tories in 2019, handing the Prime Minister his 80-seat majority, it could be all change Alison at the next general election. Perhaps Johnson won't then be Prime Minister anyway, should he be deposed beforehand by irate Tory backbenchers. While the government wants the media narrative to shift co-pilot, that question, can Boris cling on, still dominates the UK's political discourse. There's lots happening. A levelling up white paper, a U-turn on mandatory vaccinations within the NHS, tensions between Russia and Ukraine. But the media song remains the same. Can big dog Boris be saved? Woof, woof. (laughs) Before we plunge into the maelstrom of madness, can, can I just say that you are on question time. And people, we've been hearing from listeners who've been delighted to see you and, and speculating not only on your immense knowledge, but how much product you use on the famous Halligan Quiff. There's no product. I don't <laughs> use shampoo. I haven't shampooed my hair for 30 years. Oh, spare us the sordid details. Hot water. <laughs> That's all it is. You've inherited a fabulous <laughs> Irish mop. So what was it like? You know, I haven't been on Question Time since my ill-fated appearance during the referendum campaign in 2016. I think I've got post-traumatic stress syndrome, actually. You appeared just before the referendum, didn't you? And I think you had to be ushered out of the backstage <laughs> entrance for your own safety amidst the cacophony of complaints from people who shop at Waitrose. It was the usual (laughs) highly balanced BBC audience of extreme Corbynists and slightly less extreme angry Corbynists. And the producer had rung up Liam and said, Alison, will you please come on? And I said, will there be another woman on the panel? Because it always sort of slightly balances out a bit. And she said, oh, yes, there'll be another woman on the panel. So I turned up, I think we were in Brighton and was looking around the green room and, and could see no sign of another female until Eddie Izzard walked 
in in full makeup and a pink beret. And I said to the producer, where is the other woman panellist? And she said, well, when Eddie accepted, we stopped looking for another woman. And it was Eddie Izzard, Nigel Farage, Chris Grayling, you know, that quite nice tempered, but sort of slightly. A hate. man who was once transport secretary. Transport secretary and Muggins sitting on the end. And oh my God, it was that maelstrom time. Because of course, we've just seen the second anniversary of Brexit, haven't we? On Monday, the second anniversary of you and we made a drunken mini cab journey home from a Brexit dinner, didn't we? And you said, do you want to do a podcast? And I said, yes, of course, without knowing what it was. But during this question time appearance when the audience was really volatile time remember and a Welsh person in the audience was asking a question and I said oh I think Wales my you know my native homeland will vote leave and I was then of course booed and jeered and you turned out to be right turned out to be right but it was great you did it and I think you know I think I think people were genuinely thrilled and you for someone who's an economist you're wide ranging widely across all these topics well that's very kind the BBC do give me a fair crack of the whip on question time and and it's sort of radio equivalent any questions and I was delighted to go up to Morecambe we stayed in Lancaster I'm in Burnley which was of course a sort of weaving capital of the world at one point and then it reinvented itself after some hard times with a big aerospace hub light industry but Burnley was really whacked during lockdown it was the most furloughed town in Britain not least because aerospace suffered so much as global business and tourist travel cratered, of course, during the pandemic. There are signs of recovery now, but there's still a lot of poverty and a lot of deprivation. And I've been talking to people up here about their responses to the government's efforts at levelling up. That levelling up white paper came out on Wednesday. And I, I think it's fair to say that they understand Most people I speak to that the Tories know they need to say this and they know that they need to regain these red wall seats. Burnley's typical. It's got a Tory MP now since 2019, the first Tory MP here since 1910. But they're not really seeing many signs of it here on the ground. You don't have to drill down into living up white paper for very long, Alison, to see pretty clearly that there's no new money in particular. A lot of the policy commitments are quite vague. A lot of the targets that are outlined, they're they're good in theory. There's 12 principal targets relating to housing, particularly social housing, you know, subsidised rent housing for low income and vulnerable households, infrastructure, education, transport, and so on, particularly buses and local train routes, which are particularly bad across the North and the Midlands, certainly compared to the Southeast. Yet a lot of those policy targets, Alison, They're not slated to be delivered until 2030, which, of course, is quite a long way into the future. So while I think the government knows that it has to hit these buttons on levelling up if it is to regain these seats, this is something, a concept that hasn't really developed from being what was a canny slogan. There isn't really a thought through raft of policy proposals with funding that I think can be delivered before the next election. So while a lot of our people who have emailed us at Planet Normal and at our respective Telegraph email addresses too do want the government to move on, do want the media and political class to move on from birthday cakes and Downing Street lockdown, we can talk about that later in this podcast, there isn't any sense that 
these new policies designed to address these regional imbalances I outlined at the top of this episode anytime soon. And that's really unfortunate because we are a seriously regionally imbalanced country, increasingly so. Yes, I think you said something on Question Time about that. I mean, the figures are quite astounding and also the life expectancy, aren't they? I mean, for people in the north, the life expectancy compared to someone living in Chelsea is sort of five or ten years adrift. I felt it was quite strange on Monday because of the two-year anniversary of Brexit and remembering the elation we felt, the sense that some great battle had been won. I was looking at some footage of Keir Starmer back then saying there must be a second referendum. You know, he's coming over all high and mighty and moralistic now. But let's never forget, Liam, that he wanted to renege on the result of a great democratic vote. And we had had Boris in inimitable style bludgeoning Brexit through the Commons. Remember all that intransigence and supported by Dominic Cummings's tactical now. So they were a great team. Then there was this absolutely enormous bust up, which is now part of the subject of the inquiries by the Metropolitan Police, because one of the things that emerged in finally the Sue Gray report, not so much report as an update. Sue Gray didn't comment on specific events. We'll, we'll talk about that. You'll we'll have to explain it. It's, it's so complicated, isn't it? Because 12 of the parties, which the Prime Minister claimed there wasn't a, a party, but 12 of the Downing Street parties, 500 further pages, 300 photographs are now under consideration by the Metropolitan Police. And one of the parties is alleged to have taken place in the Downing Street flat in November 2020, when you'll remember Cummings, your old mate, coming out of Downing Street with his little cardboard box. And of course, and then upstairs, allegedly again in the flat, Mrs. Johnson Carey having a victory party, playing ABBA, the winner takes it all. I mean, can you imagine anything more excruciating, anything more designed to goad Cummings into this now great protracted revenge tragedy that we're all sitting in the middle of. But I did in my column this week, Liam, which I know you're a dedicated reader of the, the Pearson rantings. But Nothing better to do, of course. <laughs> I know how upset you get if I don't read it. <laughs> I love your columns. Uh, Always know, worth I, reading. I'm mutual, darling. It's absolutely mutual. I was watching the Prime Minister at the Dispatch Box. You know, I've been a really long, not just a long time supporter of his, but I've got scars on my back, Liam, from defending that yeah. man. When I wrote how thrilled I was when he survived COVID, came out of hospital, I wrote a very emotional piece for which I was lambasted by the great and the good, criticised for being sort of emotional and so on. But I felt sickened this week. I was watching him, I, the whole damn spectacle of the lot of them. Keir Starmer standing there, suddenly overcome and moved by the casualties of the brutal COVID restrictions, restrictions co-pilot, which would still be in place today if he were prime minister. And then we had Boris himself, all the sincerity of Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows, sort of doesn't really do contrition, does our Prime Minister. You know, that phrase he came out with when he was Boris, inverted pyramid of piffle. This is yeah. what he is laying onto the British people who are far ahead of the politicians, I think, now. Pyramid of piffle, absolute rubbish. There was no party. If there was a party, it was within the rules. I'm confident that I will be exonerated of any wrongdoing. 
I was unaware of the date of my own birthday. On and on, burble, burble, it goes. I mean, it's just dismaying. And I know you're saying to me that you're meeting people who want to move on. I don't know now. I just feel for someone like me now, I just can't defend him anymore. I think a lot of people are torn But if you are somebody who is very heavily reliant on the state, if you're concerned about how government policies on benefit and taxation and housing and education impact you and your family, if you are in a low income or vulnerable situation, none of which applies to much of the political media class, then you are desperate for policy and leadership that will make your life better and endless party games and squabbling by the gilded elite in SW1 and across Westminster really rankles with you. I think that's why a lot of the public wants to move on out of desperation because they want things to change. There are very serious issues that need to be addressed on the cost of living, on energy bills. A massive increase in energy bills is coming down the track. A lot of people's energy bills are going to go from about 1,200 quid a year to over 2,000. And it's literally a deal breaker for lots of families. So they want someone, anyone to focus on these issues that really matter. Because a lot of the people who write in newspapers and who speak in Parliament, who frankly talk on podcasts, if they have to spend an extra 500 quid on energy, oh, whatever. But for lots of the country, it's not like that. In the end, this isn't just about the parties because Boris had this stunning general election victory, tremendous Brexit. No one could take away that the vaccine rollout with Kate Bingham was phenomenal. But now... Attempting to foist net zero on a population which is traumatised and battered by COVID, you know, this huge cost of living crisis. You'll know this better than me, co-pilot, because it's your area. But someone was saying that people under 40 will never have known inflation like we're facing. All of these different factors are playing into a massive, I think, really massive sense of disillusion. And at the weekend, we had Boris and Rishi Sunak writing in the Sunday Times that they were going to stick with the national insurance increases. I think there's just a sense that people aren't listening. The latest poll we saw, 65% of people don't accept the PM's apology. 69% want him to resign. 68% don't think his government can deliver and on and on and on. So I know what you're saying, but I don't think this is just a media class that's completely out of touch. I do feel it's cut through in the country. I do feel Boris is to some extent a dead man walking, I'm afraid. And I think it is more serious than that. We'll have to see what happens. Certainly the drumbeat, the mood music from Downing Street and elsewhere across the government complex is that this sort of engineered delay somewhere Mm, between the Metropolitan Police and Sue Gray, Uncle Tom Cobley and all, we won't get to know what happened for some weeks, maybe even months. Could that extend beyond the May local elections? Crikey, perhaps it could. I suggest now that it probably will. You know, in my column in the paper last weekend, I compared Boris to Bill Clinton, or at least I said he needs to channel Bill Clinton because we'll remember, and many Planet Normal listeners will remember, Bill Clinton, again, fantastic communicator, natural empathy with a broad range of people, both of which Boris Johnson absolutely has in spades. Big moral failings, lots of doubts about his character. Again, they are a description of Boris Johnson as well. And yet, and yet, Bill Clinton, for all his failings and the scandals and you know, sex in the White House and so on, 
history has recorded him as a relatively even rather successful two-term Democrat president. It's not often the Democrats win two terms. Prior to Clinton, it hadn't happened since FDR after the war. Yes, Lyndon Johnson had two terms, but of course, one of his terms started in tragic circumstances after the assassination of JFK. So Clinton achieved something really remarkable, and he did it despite his moral failings and deep character flaws because, and this was the campaign slogan that he and his team adopted, the economy stupid. They focused on the economy. They focused on pocketbook, purse, household finances issues. They delivered a reasonable, stable policy platform They tweaked benefits to help ordinary people. They tweaked housing policy to help ordinary people. And they gave a sense that despite all the moral failings at the top and a lot more going on in the White House than eating birthday cake and partying, by the way, they connected with a lot of blue collar voters because on balance, outside of all the political theatrics, their economic lives improved. The economic lot of their families felt better under Clinton than it had during the years before. I think that there is something in that. For me, I guess now as a conservative supporter, I am now thinking, yes, levelling up. What does Boris Johnson stand for? I mean, Cummings has accused him of wanting to make monuments to himself. I mean, I literally now, as I was writing the column this week, suddenly up pops up in the Telegraph, this story that, in fact, the government is pulling out of cutting EU red tape to help it meet the net zero target by 2050. I simply couldn't believe it. I thought, has this man gone out of his mind? All of us who supported him are now thinking we are traduced, Liam. Tell me a policy that I could actually agree with or which I thought was voting for. So I think the combination of the scandal, which I agree is, you know, could be forgiven, but the fundamental thing which can't be forgiven is a disloyalty to the people. You know, he was our colleague, a great newspaper columnist. Now, you and I write columns. Obviously, there's an element of showmanship. There's an element of hyperbole in what we write. I'm a very serious person. (laughs) You are a very serious person. Because I just make a lot of bad jokes. And quote Ratty and Molly from Wind in the Willows. Yeah, well, you know, Velma and Shaggy us. But I still think that people reading our columns would think, oh, Liam's like that. Alison's probably like this. But the Boris Johnson we used to read, that person, he doesn't govern as he wrote. And I think that that drip, drip of disappointment. We're now seeing very loyal backbench colleagues like Andrew Mitchell, Sir Charles Walker, who I admire hugely, very principled Tory MP. I think he's one of the big people on the 1922 committee. He's leaving Parliament altogether. It all adds up to a really dangerous situation. How much longer do you think he can go on realistically? It's very hard to say. I must say that our Telegraph political team have been doing a really good job reporting on this. No one can say the Telegraph is a paper that supports the government, come what may. Absolutely not. Our political team have been reporting all kinds of very awkward stories for the Prime Minister. And of course, there's a huge range of opinion and comment among our opinion pages as well. And one of the stories that came out this week, as you say, is that the Prime Minister won't be 
pressing forward with some of the deregulation agenda linked to Brexit. And it's almost as if that story came out, it was timed to wind up David Frost, who, of course, was the chief Brexit negotiator, who many people think, not least after the interview we did with him on Planet Normal, that he should be in Parliament, he should be in the Cabinet as a peer, he should be in Downing Street, any of the above. He said publicly now he doesn't want to because he doesn't believe in the national insurance rise because he doesn't believe that the government's taking anything like the advantage it could of the new post-Brexit agenda, making use of those freedoms now that we've left the EU. And Charles Walker, as you say, look, there's lots of reasons we need some renewable energy. There's lots of reasons we should pollute less. But you don't move to a kind of post-fossil fuel energy strategy by completely scrapping fossil fuels overnight. That would be madness. And you don't do it by adding heavily to the bills of ordinary households at a time when energy prices are going through the roof. And it's almost as if this government agenda in this area, an agenda with which I have some sympathy for the aims, it's almost as if it's going ahead in the absence of any handle on the reality of what's actually happening on wholesale energy markets, of what's actually happening to household finances at the sharp end in the wake of this pandemic as inflation hits a 30-year high and rising. It's policymaking in a complete vacuum. That's how it seems to me. It's policymaking de haut en bas, from above, down below, onto ordinary people, whatever the realities they face. I agree, Liam. There's been this sort of spate of stories about Carrie Johnson now. You know, some people say, oh, this is misogynistic to target the prime minister's wife. But all roads with some of these policies do lead back to Mrs. Johnson, christened Carrie Antoinette, a much younger wife who's wedded to an awful lot of leftist fashionable causes, which to say the least, Liam, Telegraph readers are not deeply enamoured of. I mean, the latest one, which again, of course, the PM has denied, was did Carrie put pressure on to get these stray dogs and cats out of Afghanistan when men, women and children who had put themselves on the line for the British military were left at the airport. I mean, the build-up of these stories, I think the sense that this man who won Brexit because he captured the sort of the likes of us who are a bit sort of anti-establishment and suddenly, you know, he and she are coming across as the sort of de facto king and queen of a very metropolitan establishment, lots of Prosecco around the fire pit. Prosecco? Surely not. Sorry? Champagne. <laughs> It's Prosecco down at Pearson Towers now, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> this might seem like a small story, but this woman called Nikki DaCosta, she was the former director of legislative Very affairs. Very smart woman. Very yeah, smart at number woman. 10. Yeah. She was at number 10 under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Nikki DaCosta went off on maternity leave and came back when they were in the middle of all the sort of COVID stuff. And she found what she called a bunker mentality. And she says that she and others argued for something called bereavement support bubbles for those who'd lost close family, suffered miscarriages, or even the stillbirth of a baby. And the transmission impact of those bereavement bubbles would not have been significant. So that idea, compassionate idea, was apparently put in a submission to the Prime Minister 
but it was rejected, Liam. And Nikki DaCosta said there was a concern that it would send the wrong message to the public that an expansion of support bubbles would signal that everyone could relax their guard. Now, when I read that, I thought, how chilling is that? These people, once again, the partiers, the civil servants, all having a lovely time in their bunker. That was the brutality, the insensitivity of the COVID decision-making. And we've covered, haven't we, on Planet Normal, we've covered endlessly these dreadful adverse consequences. And the idea that people like Nikki DaCosta, you know, compassionate people like her, were arguing for these mitigations, ameliorations of people's suffering, and that they were rejected because other people might get the right idea and think they could give up playing by the rules, like all the people in the building who were making the rules. When the history of this period is written, it will be shown or it will be concluded that within the centre of government, you had lots of civil servants who were working hard, of course, <laughs> and are smart people. And in some senses, there's lots to be grateful to them for. But their kids were at school. They were getting chauffeur driven around the place. They were out and about. They weren't isolated in small houses and flats with children. And I do think, as David Frost said again, when he spoke to us on Planet Normal, there was a kind of otherworldliness about what was going on at the heart of government then. And I don't mind what the Prime Minister does in his personal life. I really don't, as long as he doesn't do anything completely depraved. What I care about are these policy outcomes. And there are so many policy outcomes which are either in doubt or in jeopardy or decisions that have been made, are, which are, frankly, at this moment, the wrong decision, like the decision on going ahead with the national insurance contribution rise, that I think voters are losing faith in that aspect of this government, as well as the moral characteristics as well. And we've seen another U-turn, which I know you will have welcomed, on mandatory vaccinations across the NHS. And again, there's a sense that maybe this decision could have been made earlier. And again, the government's hand has been forced by the fact that there's a shortage of NHS workers if the mandatory vaccination policy was pressed ahead with. And who could have predicted that, Liam? <laughs> I mean, You predicted that one again. And it strikes me that if the government goes on giving the impression that it's out of touch with policies that don't chime in the minds of ordinary people, with a levelling up white paper that seems remote and doesn't offer up new resources, with a prime minister that increasingly seems distanced from the people who elected him in good faith, not least across the red wall, then there is going to be a political crisis, not least because a lot of canny Tory backbenchers on the 1922 committee, they will submit those letters and a lot of what seems to be happening at the moment, a lot of the information that's coming out about parties, about policy failures, leaks from the heart of government, do seem designed to deliberately provoke MPs on the Tory backbenches to write those letters, to reach the 54 that would provoke that dramatic vote of no confidence. 
tell listeners, because I know you'll know this, they're going to try and introduce something to mitigate the effect of all the energy price rises. I mean, what will they do? Will they add to the winter fuel allowance for people? What's going to happen? Because if, as you say, bills like suddenly 500 quid more, 700 quid more, people are going to be really, well, they're going to be afraid. You know, people like my mum, Liam, will start turning the heating down. And all these pensioners that they've been bending over backwards to save during COVID, well, it'll be pretty bloody stupid if they freeze to death now, wouldn't it? Because they've got the energy pricing wrong. I know the Treasury, the Business Department as well, they've been working on some kind of complex rebate scheme whereby, I mean, how how do I put this? Ordinary people can be pay lower bills now, but much, much higher bills in the future. It's a kind of switching scheme, a soft loan scheme, as opposed to a grant or any kind of serious redress to tackle those very high energy prices. And while we rightly focus, Alison, on the plight of households, particularly poorer households, of course we do, there's no energy price cap at all for business. And a lot of our people work in sectors which are very energy intensive, not least manufacturing. Hospitality bills are very high. If you're in the hospitality industry, fuel bills, energy bills, electricity bills are very, very high. And high energy prices feed directly into measures of inflation. And so these increases aren't only going to be felt now in terms of stretching people's household finances and the balance sheets of companies. They're also going to be felt in the future because companies are going to have to put prices up more to reflect those higher energy bills. So it's a very, very difficult area. And I so, so, so wish that as much prime ministerial grey matter and focus and bandwidth had been used in this area, a vital area of public policy that will affect millions of people and millions of firms across the country, as has been put into dodging sort of political bullets relating to lockdown parties and birthday cakes. That's my frustration. I think it's a frustration felt by lots and lots of people, notwithstanding the fact that they're deeply, deeply, deeply unimpressed at behaviour during lockdown at the top of government. Not to mention the dire prospect at Pearson Towers of the Cold Wars or the the battle for the thermostat. Now, I don't know what it's like <laughs> around your house, but I have the misfortune, although sometimes the fortune... Put a hat on. <laughs> Put a cardi on. If you were married to someone who was sent away to prep school when they were seven and was used to breaking the ice in the basin in the morning before going out to do star jumps, I like kind of ambient 22 degrees temperature. You don't have to wear a bikini indoors (laughs) all the time. If I just want to wear a robe around the place, I'm expecting it to be warm. I mean, we just have, oh my God, the set twos. You can't imagine. I go out of the room, I come back, he's Bloody turned it down, hasn't he? I'm with himself. I'm with Anthony. (laughs) Are you? You'll get no sympathy here, Pearson. Put a jumper on. It's perfectly fine. You know, (laughs) do some star jumps. Read some Chaucer. That'll warm you up. (laughs) Or watch Prime Minister's Questions. That'll get your blood boiling. I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast, mine. I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. 
It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub, just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street. Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics, from London Mayor Sadiq Khan to leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! Now, co-pilot, we do try to be up to date on Planet Normal. And this week, our guest is part of a major news story with, as you said earlier, the government executing a U-turn on mandatory vaccinations for NHS workers. Dr. Steve James sprang to prominence when he challenged the health secretary, Sajid Javid, during a visit to King's College Hospital London. While the health secretary was trying to encourage nurses to voice their support for his no-jab, no-job policy, Steve James stepped forward, an ordinary doctor, and said, sorry, I'm not happy about that. I've had COVID. I've got antibodies. I've been working on COVID ICU since the beginning. I've not had a vaccination. I don't want to have a vaccination. The science isn't strong enough, he said. That explosive intervention, Liam, you'll have seen, quickly went viral. Steve James was given a platform to express his concerns. And of course, his frontline experience gave him a moral authority, which he challenged into preparing a legal challenge with a Together campaign against the vaccine mandate. Steve James grew up in Devon, went to medical school, first at Cambridge, then at Barts and the London Hospital. He's worked in the NHS since 1999, becoming a consultant and anaesthetist in 2013. In 2020, in the spring of 2020, he was seconded to support the critical care service, working in the front line, and he's been looking after patients with COVID-19 in intensive care ever since. So I began by asking Steve James for his reaction to the news that the COVID vaccination would no longer be mandatory for staff in the NHS. My feeling about the U-turn is that it's very appropriate. Um, I think that when, when science and public opinion isn't aligned with what policy is, then when the government makes a U-turn, it should simply be welcomed and we should start to ask ourselves also, why a U-turn has been necessary and where else we might need to make changes. With regards to my own role, I, I think I was the right person at the right place in the right time and just happened to have then been caught on camera. I'm pretty sure there would have been another sort of person, something else would have come out into the, the mainstream media and hopefully the story would have gone the same way. Yes, just to remind listeners about your sudden kind of going viral, Sajid Javid, the health secretary, was visiting King's College Hospital in London. As far as I could see, he was clearly encouraging nurses to speak up in support of mandatory vaccination for NHS workers. They looked extremely awkward. You stepped forward, Steve. You said, I'm not happy about that. I've had COVID at some point. I've got antibodies and I've been working on COVID ICU since the beginning. I've not had a vaccination. I don't want to have a vaccination. The science isn't strong enough. And Mr. Javid, did have the grace to look extremely embarrassed. Now, it was a very powerful intervention, Steve. I think you're rather downplaying your personal role in this U-turn, which I think was immensely influential. Did you plan to say something to the health secretary? Had this feeling of wrongness been building inside you for some time? 
So I'd felt the vaccine mandate was wrong from the beginning. I started talking to some colleagues in December and I drafted a letter to send out to my consultant colleagues before Christmas. But because we didn't really know what was going to happen with Omicron, I didn't send that letter at that time. You know, I was fairly clear about being against this mandate. I, I decided I wasn't going to take the vaccine. And then it was really by chance that uh, I was at work the first day of my sort of run of seven days. We were told that the health secretary, Sajid Javid, was coming to, to visit the hospital and he'd be coming to visit my intensive care unit that day or the unit I was working on that day. And yes, I decided I would say something to him. I didn't expect him to ask that question. I expected to kind of have a chat with him while walking around. And I thought, well, if it's, if it's caught on camera, so be it. And it actually, it did end up going viral on Sky. And it was, it, it was almost the first time, I think, that this had got out into the public domain. Did you feel that, that you were reflecting the view of many colleagues? We haven't seen much support against the mandate from the BMA, have we? Or from other unions or indeed from hospital management? Yeah, so I, I've had an enormous show of support for people who felt their voices have been very much uh, unheard since the vaccine mandate was announced and, and more widely over the period of the lockdown. Did you think that Sajid Javid and the government were playing a game of brinkmanship to some extent? Is that what you think was going on? Do you think they were ever serious about sacking almost 100,000 NHS staff at a time of total crisis for the NHS? I, I wouldn't think that I can get inside the mind of a politician, but I, could, I can theorise uh, different, different possibilities. One is they did it to care home sector workers and were blind to the impact on those people and the, the ability to deliver care. So they might well do it to the rest of the healthcare sector. If they were doing it and without planning to put it through, then that's a, a quite an odd form of coercion, which surely can't be allowable in this country that you you threaten a law and, and people feel pressurised to go and have a vaccine they don't want to have. Steve, I just want to clarify, you are not anti-vax. You are anti-making the COVID vaccine mandatory for everyone. Have you seen benefits from the extensive vaccination of the older population, do you think? I think I'd like to address that anti-vaccine sort of label. Anti-vaccine as a, as a label is meant to marginalise people who hold a different point of view. And I don't think that's really a healthy thing to do in society. We do that for lots of different groups because we want to say that their views are, are not worth listening to. And people who've been put in the anti-vaccine category have basically been anybody who hasn't agreed entirely with, with the government. So what was important in, in what I did was that I, I stood up, I was called anti-vax by various news outlets but I managed to carry on getting an opinion out that people could see that I wasn't their stereotypical, completely to be dismissed voice of, uh, of anti-vaccine. Yes, I have seen the differences over the last two years in the presentation rate of patients into the intensive care. That's meant a significant drop. I and mean, we're talking sort of 80, 90% drop in, in, in absolute numbers of patients coming into intensive care and that's in the population that's elderly, that's got comorbid disease, that have got are vulnerable due to being immunocompromised. And there's a number of factors behind that. Uh, one factor will be the vaccine. Another factor will be the change in virulence of the virus itself. 
Another thing would be the other uh, modalities of uh, medical treatment, both pharmaceutical and the type of care that's delivered to them when they're in hospital. One thing that jumped out at me from your exchange with Sajid Javid, you said, I haven't seen anyone like me with COVID in my ICU. Many of the patients that you were treating were obese. Now, can you tell listeners roughly what percentage of people in ICU with a primary COVID diagnosis were overweight? And why is that a major problem for treating this disease? I would hesitate to put a figure on it because there are people who'd be able to put a correct number on that. There's also a question about the degree of obesity that we describe in our patients. Unfortunately, obesity has become such a prevalent issue that I think many people in the health service don't really we're not so quick to flag it up as a comorbidity. So just when someone's BMI has reached 30, that's technically obesity, but often people don't make that calculation. So there's a lot of obesity that's probably not recognized. Of course, BMI is not an absolute calculation and association because you can be you know, a strong athlete and have a high BMI, but I think we can say that there are not many of those patients on ITU. But there's the whole process of hyperinsulinemia, which is behind obesity, which is behind hypertension, which is behind type 2 diabetes. And that issue is there even sometimes when obesity isn't present. And I think that's probably one of the underlying factors between, or that is an underlying factor behind the risk factors that mean that people get really sick with COVID. You know, you've been in ICU from the beginning of the pandemic. Can you just tell us, because I've seen footage like everyone else of very, very large patients in intensive care, taking about six or even seven nurses to turn them over. What is happening in that treatment? Is it very hard? You know, are their organs squashed together? Is that what's meant by morbid obesity? You would take seven patients to turn any patient over if that's a ventilated patient. You might need a group of seven stronger people if you've got someone who's morbidly obese. Morbid obesity is a big factor. You've got the driving causes behind obesity, which are usually driving many other factors other than just obesity. You've got the effect that the extra weight will have on your ability to be ventilated and your ability for your your lungs to open and close under good pressures, shall we say. You need extra high pressures to, to ventilate someone who's morbidly obese. And then you've got the ratio between the actual lung size and that person's overall body size. So as you get fatter and you become more obese, you do not increase your lung size. So those lungs have got to go further, should we say. Last week, we saw a BBC News report, not sure if you saw it, Steve, by Clive Myrie, in which a consultant at Barts Hospital was walking through an ICU, pointing at patients saying, unvaccinated, unvaccinated, unvaccinated. It it, it seems to me that shaming COVID patients for being unvaccinated is seen as okay, even encouraged, but pointing out, as you have, that being seriously overweight, that kind of shaming would, would, would be considered unacceptable. What was your view of that doctor doing that? You know, he was asked to describe that and he answered it honestly. I mean, I've spoken to another source from East London who's told me a bit more about the picture at the hospital there. And what you need to know is that within the intensive care units, there's now a quite different proportion of of patients who've got actual COVID-19. So they've got the sort of pneumonitis lung disorder from COVID and they're sick because of that. 
And they're starting to move towards being the majority of patients who've got a coincidental positive test. And then you've got a minority of patients who have got a genuine COVID-19 lung disorder. Now, within the last month, most of the intensive care units have admitted very few patients. And if you look among those group of patients who were, were vaccinated in, in that clip, I believe only one or two of them were admitted in the last month. I was talking to Shanetra Gupta. She's the Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at Oxford. She's a good friend of Planet Normal, Steve. And I told her about your case and she said Dr. Steve James has had covid in his work, he will have had daily re-exposure to the virus. He will enjoy superb immunity to COVID-19 better than any provided by the vaccine. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, it's, it's my understanding. It was also my understanding from the beginning, actually, that uh, I wish I'd said this more widely, but I wasn't really into putting my voice out so widely until a few weeks ago, that we should have focused on a couple of things. We should have focused on isolation and protection of, of the vulnerable, of shifting the health of people who were otherwise had comorbidities and, and you know just trying to get the nation healthier and then letting those who were healthy carry on with life, support the economy and develop natural immunity. I thought it was my responsibility to get natural immunity. Yet the Prime Minister said in his New Year message get the jab, it's easier than losing weight. As, as a health professional, how do you respond to that? I can't bring myself to watch that since he said it. <laughs> I know that when he came out of St Thomas's and he was talking about a campaign to manage obesity, seems to have had his uh, mind changed. I'd like to, to hear Boris give an explanation for that. I think they may be veering back towards a, towards a healthier eating strategy, which I know will be music to your ears. Steve, Throughout the pandemic on Planet Normal, we've heard from doctors and nurses, from consultants and GPs, from a district nurse we had on, a London GP. None of them have felt able to speak out in their own name. They clearly fear retribution from the NHS. Would you say that the NHS has a secretive or punitive culture towards dissenters? And have you personally suffered any consequences yet for speaking out? In general, I wouldn't say there's a punitive culture for speaking out. But at present, there is a culture that you should only speak out if you're following the narrative, at least it has been up until a few weeks ago. So I know colleagues who've done press both pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine mandate, and they've all had some hassle for it. And mainly because we haven't invited an open debate, an ongoing debate during this pandemic. I think the government's use of the Coronavirus Act to kind of say, look, we're just going to get on and do what we think is necessary was probably appropriate at the beginning. But what I would say is that there isn't a mandate from the country for them to discriminate based on vaccination status. I don't believe there's a mandate to say the country wants vaccine passports, that it wants mandatory vaccination for, for staff. There's a lot of moves that have happened from the government that I don't see a mandate for from the public. George, who is our anonymous NHS England source, actually sent me recently the results of a poll that was conducted internally in the NHS about the mandatory vaccination. And it was hugely against mandatory vaccinations. That's all NHS staff. 
And yet, you know, that finding was overruled and indeed ignored. Does that surprise you? I saw a couple of days ago the equality impact assessment from the government that was commissioned beforehand, and that was looking at uh, support or unsupportiveness for people across different religious groups and different ethnic backgrounds. And that showed a very clear uh, majority of people not supportive of a vaccine mandate. So I, I think the government knew that the, the, the staff didn't want it. And talking to people on the ground, I really would find it hard to say I, I know anyone who's, who's fully behind a vaccine mandate. I don't feel comfortable with government messaging about vaccination for healthy people. I don't feel the messaging has been clear enough to say this is this is the informed. Well, there, there isn't an informed consent process for vaccination. It's like, do you want to have the vaccine and you get it? And again, just to say, being cautious about these things is not to be the same as as being anti-vaccination, is it? No, it's to say, open information, please. The information from the Pfizer trial, like it was requested in the BMJ editorial, you know, let's have this information out in the public. Why should it be protected information? When you look back, what are the things you think that will be shocking about medicine during this period? Do you think there's been too much silence and going along with the official narrative? For me, the shocking thing is there was no drive towards improving the health of the nation from the outset. I just thought, come on, you know, if you run with with a healthier nation policy, the country's going to be completely behind you and just think about the long-term benefits that could bring. So on Planet Normal, Steve, we offer our guests a special magic wand, which they can wave to improve, <laughs> improve the madness that persists on planet Earth. Dr. Steve, if we gave you those powers... What would you do to improve the NHS in the next few years? So if I had a magic wand, every hospital in the country would have a preventative stroke reversal of chronic disease department where research can be done, where educational classes are provided, and that would be out in the community as well. We should be making it a positive choice for people to eat well, move well, and, and live a healthier lifestyle. Steve, you've been very modest. I, I'd just like to say that I think it's clear your courageous intervention with Sajid Javid had a huge, pivotal impact on this no jab, no job issue and that tens of thousands of NHS staff owe you a debt of gratitude, as do all of the citizens on Planet Normal. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Alison. It's been a pleasure. Alison, fabulous that Steve joined us on Planet Normal. He became a sort of instant household name, didn't he, for a while. What must it be like to have the Secretary of State visit you at your hospital and you're a frontline health professional, a very distinguished frontline health professional, and on camera you actually challenge the Cabinet Minister? Pretty gutsy. Very gutsy. And I think really having been there at the front line with all those very sick people with COVID, having just that unique perspective and perhaps looking at the health secretary and thinking, mate, you don't really know what you're talking about. Liam, I know that you and I disagreed months ago. I know we very rarely disagree, co-pilot, but you were more for mandatory vaccination of care home workers than I was. And I think 
Why I think the picture has really changed is the last couple of weeks. We're seeing now major surveys confirming what Dr. Steve James is saying to us. The CDC in America has just said that having had COVID, natural immunity is superior and longer lasting than any bestowed by the vaccine. One of Steve James's points, of course, is that with Omicron, which is everywhere now, Omicron evades the vaccine. Shanetra Gupta said to me, Omicron's huge advantage over Delta is it can get by any vaccine. So the picture has changed. And I think, as we said at the top of the podcast, really, Sajid Javid and the government really behind the curve, waiting until the last minute to abandon this mandatory vaccination. They were faced with entire maternity units closing down co-pilot. I mean, that's the kind of idiocy. So I think what Steve did, he's a very modest guy, but I think he just stood there and says, I don't think there is the science case for it now. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful emails coming. We absolutely love reading them and learn so much from you, all our Planet Normal family. Liam, you won't be surprised to hear we had tons of Boris emails this week. Jan says, I find the current Prime Minister's lack of a moral compass, his shaky grasp of truth and his inappropriate levity entirely repugnant. I and the majority of people in this country play fair and carry the burden of our responsibilities and duty. Is it asking too much for a leader with the same set of values? The only sure thing is that at some point there will be a vacancy for Johnson's next mistress and it is to be hoped he picks someone with economic and business nous. I was thinking the co-pilot wouldn't make a bad third or fourth, Mrs Johnson. What do you think? Good balance? He can't afford me. <laughs> he can't. You've got cheaper tasting wallpaper than her, haven't you? And then, <laughs> this is from John. You'll love this. John says, one positive piece of news for Boris Johnson. The Met has said he may qualify for their buy 10 fines, get two free February promo. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Chris. Dear Alison and Liam, Bob Seeley, that's the Isle of Wight MP who was on Planet Normal last week, Bob Seeley says Chris was a worthy stairway to Planet Normal. Hear, hear. One thing that really intrigues me is why those who have been such staunch advocates of lockdown have taken such an extreme view with the devastating results we've seen on the economy and the mental health of the nation. I think the answer can be found partly in the fact so many of those who've supported continuing lockdowns are either civil servants or quasi-civil servants, members of the SAGE group, GPs, teachers or even the police. These people have virtually guaranteed jobs and are largely fireproof, often with gold-plated defined benefit pensions. So the downsides of being completely risk-averse are extremely limited in their case. How about, says Chris, every time lockdown is imposed, civil servants also take a 20% pay cut, aligning their experience with the real world, giving these apparatchiks pause for thought. Instead, they're rewarded with honours. Ridiculous. Keep up the great work. Chris. Here's one from David. Dear Planet Normal, thanks for keeping me sane over the last few years. It's been tough. One of the hardest things has been seeing the impact on my young children. My now six-year-old daughter has missed almost half her entire school career so far. At the peak of the pandemic, I was presented with a spectacularly crazy situation, which was not only ridiculous, but also psychologically dangerous. 
I was trying to convince my daughter to go into school for the first time after a long lockdown and she was very uncertain. I asked the teacher to hold her book bag whilst I hugged her and tried to reassure her. The teacher explained to my daughter without looking at me that she couldn't take the book bag from me or come near me because it was dangerous, even though my daughter would later hand her the same bag to the teacher anyway, not to mention being close proximity to a child who lives in the same house as me. I also had to explain to my then four and a half year old child that I wasn't dangerous when she asked why the teacher said I was dangerous to be near. It tested my resolve not to show my anger towards the effects of lockdowns on my children in my efforts to protect their future. Regards, David. We'll look back on this madness, won't we, Liam? Insane. Absolutely insane. Imagine scaring a little child about her daddy. Anyway, listen, on a, on a brighter note, I had some fun this week in the column because I was doing a thing about writing a sentence, readers saying something which would be incomprehensible to today's younger people. I saw this going around on Twitter and you know what? I knew you were going to write about it and I knew you were going to talk about cassette tapes. I just knew. I just knew. We'd had a conversation with our son who's just 22. Himself was trying to explain the cassette tapes and putting the pencil in the hole. Do you remember that? And rewind yeah, to, it. To rewind it quickly, yeah. And Tom was looking like, who are these absolute saddos, you know? But anyway, Steve said, here's a trio of things which would be incomprehensible to youngsters today. Filling inkwells, later replaced with the Sunday evening ritual of filling my fountain pen ready for school on Monday, whitening plimsolls with Meltonian white. I think I can just about remember that in a sort of foam like I can smell it as you, you speak. smell it. As a cynic, Steve says, I might add, clergymen who believed in God, teachers who knew what they were talking about, thinking our unarmed civilian police force was something to be proud of, going to university was a privilege which had to be earned rather than absolute right, happy days in simpler times before we had to be re-educated into realising how awful we are and how you uniquely shameful our history is. My equivalents are those things that kids wouldn't understand now. A lot of them are from the TV I grew up with. So it'd be things like, oh, I could crush a grape, crack a jack pencil and flip an egg tucker. (laughs) (laughs) I think on my deathbed, the only name I'll remember will be Peter Glaze or Leslie Crowther. (laughs) Long after I've forgotten every work of English literature. Finally, from Karen, Karen says on the subject of things young people wouldn't understand, having to pull the choke on my mini and pray it would start and hope the rubber mat on the floor would stop the water coming up through the hole in the floor. And finally, Brentford nylons. You and I will have been in there, Liam. And the yellow striped sheets that sparked every time you turned over in bed made worse by a nice nylon nighty. That was my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Wimpy brown derbies and knickerbocker glories. (laughs) On that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email a week. It's my turn today. And you know what? I have to give it to David. I have to give it to David. If we ask Theodora Leluda's nicely, could we send one to David and to David's daughter and say to her, her daddy is very lovely and not at all dangerous? Theo's a good woman. I think she'll recognise the merit of, on this occasion, a double planet normal mug transmission. (laughs) Beaming them up (laughs) as we speak. David, send in 
to the Planet Normal email address, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with the subject heading mug winner, your postal address, and we will make sure that happens. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and you jolly well should, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does really help others to find us so the fantastic Planet Normal family can grow. Also, if you would like to enjoy my Telegraph columns and the obscure, random, slightly knowledgeable scrawlings of co-pilot Halligan, and you're not already Telegraph subscribers, listeners can get a one-month subscription for free by going to telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. Scrawlings, good job <laughs> i got a thick skin. Do keep emailing us. We love to hear from you. We are a family. This is Planet Normal. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal, the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our wonderful producers, Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, our new editor, Zoe Hitch. And thanks as ever also to our overlord, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 